The Truth News Network. A liberal school board is voted out. Conservatives are voted in. The State Department of Education doesn't like it and disbands the school board and puts the old agenda back into place. And where is this happening? Cuba, Russia, China, North Korea? No, New Mexico. Have you heard the story yet? Because the press is oddly silent. But we're not. We're TNN, the Truth News Network, and the speaker of this house is Dan Newman. And right now, this house is the only one that matters, right? Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to a brand new week. And just think about it. Before long, we're going to be in Halloween month. Wow, already. Just 11 days left to go in the month of September. How was your weekend? Did you get a bunch done? Hey, guys, what about those honeydews? I know it was a football weekend, but I hope you... uh, left the television long enough to make some brownie points with mama. (laughs) We all have to do that from time to time. Well, I know you'll probably be shocked to know this, but while you were watching football and while you, speaking to the moms, were watching Hallmark movies, things kept going on in the United States of America and around the world every day. The globe just continues to spin. And when it spins, folks, stuff keeps happening. And boy, is it happening. We have a plethora of important things to talk about today just to catch you up. And I guess one of the biggest and the saddest things is about the Gabby Petito issue. The FBI announced yesterday they had found remains up in Wyoming that could be Gabby Petito, but the Identification has yet to be confirmed. They made the announcement. And still, Brian Laundrie, her fiancé, is nowhere to be found. I am really struggling with information this morning. Now, supposedly, after they were seen and uh, those cops talked to them outside of Moab, Utah, they went from their own up into Wyoming. At some point, he left. Wyoming, and ended up back at their home in in Florida, his parents' home. And uh, I thought that van, I thought that white van that we saw the pictures over the weekend were found at his parents' place, not at their house, but back down there in Florida. I find out now I'm apparently wrong. If that, the van in the picture, is actually her van, it was found in Wyoming. So how the heck did he get back to Florida? And so now, apparently, um, his parents told the cops that he left their house and went to that reserve, that big reserve, 30, 40, 50,000 nature reserve outside of their town in South Florida. This thing just gets deeper and deeper with no answers, with the exception that Gabby has been missing. Now, he's not even classified by the FBI as a legitimate missing person, but, uh, depending on what they find out, if that is her body when they do a forensic investigation and autopsy and find out that it looks like he may be involved, he will not be a missing person. He'll be a wanted person. All that being said, our prayers go out for the family. I can't even imagine the tragedy that goes along with losing a baby. And there's still that hope upon hope of her parents, I promise you this, that that's not going to be 
their baby Gabby. It'll be another, sadly, it'll be another person. As a matter of fact, there are a couple of missing persons up there, and um, that body they found could be one of those other people. If any of this breaks while we're on the air in the next two hours, we'll be we'll be sure to tell you about it and move over and give you the latest there. But meanwhile, did you hear what happened over the weekend about that massive $3.5 trillion spending bill pending before the U.S. Congress? They call it infrastructure. They call it social engineering and social safety nets, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the Senate parliamentarian, that's... Elizabeth McDonough, we very seldom hear her name. She's just a current parliamentarian. But these are the people, there's one in the House, there's one in the Senate. They make all the rules. Well, the Senate and the House separately make their own rules, but the Senate parliamentarian is charged with the responsibility of making sure that anything either House does fits the Senate and the House rules. She reportedly ruled over the weekend that Democrats plan to slip a massive amnesty for millions of illegal aliens into a budget reconciliation package. They can't do it. It's outside the scope of budgetary matters, and this is likely going to crush the plan. Now, why would it crush the plan? Well, guess who's going to hold out if this massive amnesty is deleted from that bill? AOC and the gang, the squad, they're not going to vote for anything that doesn't include this massive amnesty. McDonough ruled yesterday evening that it cannot, the plan cannot be included in that budget reconciliation package, which is a filibuster-proof maneuver that only needs a majority support in the Senate. Instead of needing 60 votes to kill a filibuster, when they do it under budget reconciliation, it only takes 51 And they have 50-50 Republicans and Democrats in the Senate, but they have a vice president that would cast a deciding vote in the case of a tie. Kamala Harris happens to be a Democrat. Changing the law, McDonough said, to clear the way to lawful permanent resident status is tremendous and enduring policy change that dwarfs its budgetary impact, she wrote in her decision rejecting that uh, amnesty to be left in that bill. As part of that $3.5 trillion budget, Democrats for months had hoped to slip an amnesty for illegal aliens enrolled and who are eligible for the DACA program. That stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Those employed on United States farms, those with temporary protected status, and those who were deemed essential workers. In other words, Democrats basically said, anybody we say falls into any of these classes, we want those people to get legal status automatically, just because they're here. In August, a budget resolution framework that was put out there by Democrats had that amnesty in it. They had not told anybody that before it slipped out of their budget planning committee stuff. But uh, reportedly, it's going to cost $107 billion, just that alone, in the $3.5 trillion. All along, though, Democrats and Joe were relying on Madonna to approve the amnesty's inclusion in a reconciliation package because they don't have the votes to pass the plan using standard House and Senate rules. Then late last week, 
McDonough heard arguments from Democrats as to why the amnesty should be part of the budget reconciliation thing. Biden was, of course, relying on the inclusion of that to get across the finish line. This has got to be, so far at least, his top priority for his voter base and the political establishment's donor class. There they are. They just admitted it. It's the money, folks. They've got to pacify the people that write campaign checks. I strongly support giving DREAMers, TPS recipients, farm workers, and essential workers the long-awaited pathway to the citizenship that they deserve, Biden said this past week. I'm working closely with Congress right now to finally make that a reality. Well, particularly for the donor class and for investors and big business lobby, the Samnity would flood the U.S. labor market with millions of newly legalized foreign workers while shifting wealth, where? To California, Oregon, Washington, then on the, the East Coast, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey. Wealth goes there, which would be a boon for blue states and big blue cities. Already, current immigration levels put downward pressure on U.S. wages and redistributes about half a trillion dollars in wealth away from America's working and middle class, but toward employers and new arrivals. Now, that's not just something we pulled out of the air here at Truth News Network. That comes from research by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. The CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, they're the watchdogs for all things money that come up to and out of Congress. They have repeatedly found that amnesty for illegals would be a net fiscal drain for American taxpayers, and they're going to drive down U.S. wages. Now, why is that? Well, folks, these big companies, especially big agricultural companies out west, they know when they get these illegals now, even if they term them to be legal, they're going to be able to pay them lower wages than they would for American counterparts. And even though they say, oh, we've got big hearts and we want to let all these people come in here just to make a better life for themselves and their families, that's not what drives the boat. You and I both know what drives the boat. What is it? Money. And regardless of what the net result is going to be, as long as they can reduce their cost of producing products for the American people, more goes to the corporate bottom line. And I don't care what, I mean, this is not a Democrat solo problem, folks. There are plenty of Republicans that own big companies, big conservative corporations, major corporations, and they look at the bottom line. And when they see an opportunity to twist and maybe tweak some things in regulations and government edicts that they have the power in many cases to make happen with their campaign contributions, they're going to do whatever's necessary to build that bottom line and do it by driving their costs down. But I got to be honest with you. I've felt this a long time. I've said this again and again. We've written article after article about it through the years. We need for immigration 
to be managed by the United States Congress through the lawmaking process, regular order, where bills, not in a massive omnibus with hundreds of different sections and thousands of pages of provisions, which nobody has a chance to read and investigate and find out the real ramifications of every part within it. They wait till the last minute to throw these out to be voted on. And of late, folks, the Democrat Congress, they control the House and the Senate. They don't even want debate to occur on these bills. Hey, here it is. They make a motion to put it out there on the floor. Somebody, because they're in charge, they pass and it goes out on the floor. Somebody makes a motion for a vote and they vote on them. There's no discussion. These aren't coming through regular order, which is the committee structure where a bill comes to the Speaker of the House or in the Senate to the majority leader, and then those leaders make a determination of which ones go to the which committees. And they send them down there. And when they're in committee, all of the little pieces of those are painstakingly investigated and hearings are held. And people involved in this, they come and testify. Questions are asked and answered. And after that long, arduous process, those committees will make a vote themselves as to whether there should be amendments. Then they debate any amendments. They approve them or disprove them at one point. If and when that committee makes a determination, this thing, this bill now is ready to go to the floor, they'll send it back to the speaker or to the majority leader. Then once again, they make a decision if and when to bring those to a floor to be considered there. That's called regular process. None of this has gone through that. Joe Biden and his minions want us to sign off on $3.5 trillion, and we know for a fact it's full of pork. It's full of partisan issues and opportunities for people that give them a lot of money, them being Democrats to tip the scale in their favor. And for the parliamentarian to finally put her foot down and say, no, 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 you can't put this in this $3.5 trillion bill. Illegal immigration, normal immigration. It's got to be handled separately by the entire U.S. Congress. Novel idea. (laughs) Let's let those members of the House and Senate up there do their own job. I mean, literally, do their job. And uh, there's another fly in the ointment on this $3.5 trillion bill. Over the weekend, Joe Manchin put out he is pushing for a what he calls a strategic pause for that $3.5 trillion bill until next year. Now, he said this. He didn't come out and do it in an interview. He was talking to workers at a Procter & Gamble facility in Martinburg's Virginia. And he said he wanted to pause all the negotiations on the bill until next year. This comment mirrors his call for a strategic pause that he floated out last week in a Wall Street Journal op-ed. This pause until 2022, what would it do? Well, it would, first of all, delay the $3.5 trillion and the $1.2 trillion so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill. Pelosi and Schumer... They plan to vote on the big bill, $3.5 trillion, by the end of this month, they said. And Pelosi plans to vote on the Senate-passed bipartisan infrastructure bill by the 27th of this month. 
both bills delay is if it happens, folks, it's going to probably unwind that delicate balance that's been struck between the more moderate and the progressive Democrats in both the House and the Senate. Leftist lawmakers, they're going to vote against the bipartisan bill if it's not paired together with the big bill, the $3.5 trillion bill. However, moderate Democrats want to pass the bipartisan bill, the little one, and if you can call (laughs) a trillion and a half dollars little, but they want to pass that as soon as possible. They want it on the floor to be voted on this week. So let's just back up for a second and put this in perspective. You know what's around the corner a year from now, midterm elections. So already, folks, every member of the House, every member of the Senate, they've got their attention. It may be on a television screen on the side of their desk in their office, but they're watching closely the polls, how the people in their respective states and districts feel about each one of these issues. And they're every morning. They get up at some point before they go to the office typically. They'll lick their finger, stick it up in the air outside, and see which way the wind blows that day on each and every one of these issues. And so, as they should, but not because of dollars and cents and votes, as they should, they should vote on every issue they consider every day based solely upon what the people in their states, that's for the senators, and in their congressional districts, that's for the members of the House of Representatives, what their constituents think about each and every one of these things. That should be the only thing that matters. Sadly, though, it's not. I'm, I'm sorry to shock you if you didn't know that, but sadly, it's not. Boy, we have a lot more to talk about. Biden's, he's really stepped in it more so than ever. And uh, we've got some folks that we're going to check with this morning. They're going to weigh in with with some specifics there. But I got to be honest with you. His administration is in deep, deep trouble. And I got to be honest with you on a second thing. I, I don't know that he can make it till the end of the year. Wow. That is serious, if that's factual, Dan. We're going to wade into that and a whole lot more. Don't go anywhere back in two minutes at TNN Live. Genuine Ford Parts and Service presents A Word From Your Wallet. Are we at the gas station? Yeah, I know. I'm feeling these gas prices, too. I'm the wallet down here. Head to a Ford dealership. Why? Proper vehicle maintenance. A new air filter can save 19 cents a gallon. Correct tire inflation up to 6 cents a gallon. Wow, that sure adds up. Fat wallets are very in right now. Right now, Motorcraft air filter replacement is just $19.95 or less. Replacing a dirty air filter can increase fuel economy by as much as 10%. Well, done. That was easy. Maybe you should listen to your wallet more often. Well, you're typically pretty quiet. Well, I didn't want to be a pain in the... Uh, 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 uh. Hurry in for the best deals we've had in years. Money-saving rebates on brakes, batteries, tires, and more. See your participating Ford dealer today. The following is an important time-insensitive announcement from Staples. Now, for an unlimited time only, Staples is drastically cutting their everyday prices on hundreds of products your business needs. That's right. The clock is not ticking. What? Crawl or lollygag to Staples, and you will not miss this opportunity. These are everyday price cuts. Take a four-pack of AA Duracell batteries, was four seventy nine, now just two ninety nine. 
But act now or later because these Staples Everyday Price Cuts will be around for a really, really long time. Price Cuts, like a two-pack of Scotch Magic Tape, previously $4.79, now just $2.99. And Scotch Packaging Tape, now just $2.29 for today, tomorrow, and pretty much every day till the cows come home. But don't hurry. These Everyday Price Cuts are indefinite. To repeat, these prices will last. So stop by your nearest Staples whenever it's convenient and take advantage of these normal, continuing Everyday Price Cuts. Thank you. Hi, Tom Bodette. Motel 6's new improved website lets you book a room and save more for what you travel for faster than ever. Even faster than you can find your keys, which you swore were right on the little hooky thing by the garage door where they always are, and we can land a robot on a comet, but we can't keep keys from disappearing. Oh, here they are. Left them in my jacket. Don't you hate that? I'm Tom Bodette for the new improved Motel6.com, and we'll leave the light on for you. The Truth and Dan Newman goes together like beans and rice, brats and kraut, you and the future. TNN, The Truth News Network. You know, it's just September. Yeah, it's close to the end of the month. We're supposed to wait to eat red beans and rice until it gets cool outside. You know, football and uh, lighting the fire in the fireplace and eating red beans and rice. I told my wife last night, red beans and rice sounds good right now. Why do we have to wait? Oh, I hope she's listening. Uh, Marianne, red beans and rice would be nice tonight. Just saying. Just a suggestion. Hey, we told you about Joe Manchin. He's asking for a pause on that uh, $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill until next year. Well, Jim Shorten, He is a Republican congressman from Ohio. He is pretty much demanding for a pause. His words, a pause, and not just that, but a bunch of other stuff going on around us right now. I mean, I would tell you the things he thinks we should pause on, but I think you know what many of them are. But I I think it's better if we listen to the fiery representative from Ohio in Congress making a case for a pause. Uh, thank you, thank you, Madam Chair. Um, I, I uh, moved to strike the last word. You were recognized for five uh, minutes. Thank you, Madam Chair. I support the gentleman from Florida's amendment and uh, want to associate myself with the comments from the gentleman from, from Wisconsin. I mean, think about this. The Taliban just took over. Terrorist organization now runs Afghanistan. We have a border wide open month after month after month, six months in a row where the number of uh, enforcement encounters has increased every single month to the tune of 212,000 in the month of July alone, 1.3 million this entire year. So the Taliban and terrorist organizations just took over Afghanistan. We have a border that's wide open. We have tens of thousands of Afghans coming into this country, and we have an incompetent administration. Incompetent administration based on what we saw in Afghanistan where 13 service members were killed Americans left behind, allies left behind, and billions of dollars of equipment and weapons left behind. That is a combination that cries out for a pause, a timeout. And that is exactly what this amendment does. All it says is, hey, let's step back a second. We got a, we got a dangerous mix of facts here that could threaten the security of the American people. A terrorist organization running a country, a border wide open, and an incompetent administration. Maybe we should step back until we get things figured out. That, doesn't, that, that seems like common sense to me. Seems like a darn good amendment. Seems like a darn good idea. I hope that the majority will accept this amendment. I yield back. I think 
Jordan spoke there for millions of Americans who just don't understand what and why things continue to happen the same old way. It's almost every day, folks. The same kind of stuff happens, and nobody in the Biden administration is lifting a finger to change anything. In fact, the train is not going straight ahead. The train of government. The train of government has topped a mountain and is headed down, and down at the bottom is certain destruction. Nobody's put on the brakes, and I don't see any appearance that anybody in the near future is going to do that right now. And now even the mainstream media are piling on the president. Like Chuck Todd yesterday on NBC on the Today Show. He said, I think the president's got a pretty big credibility crisis on his hands because all of these problems in some ways showed up after he said something exactly the opposite, like the Afghanistan withdrawal wasn't going to be messy. This wasn't going to look like Saigon, he told us over and over and over again. Got mad when somebody asked him about it. The booster shots, he came out and essentially said eight months. And he even indicated maybe we should start it as soon as five months. Now we're not sure if anybody under 65 is going to get one. And then there's the border. The border has been, whether this is we can talk about the border problem, say they are years in the making, but it's pretty clear to everybody we have a bigger problem now than we've had in years, maybe ever. And these policies have turned into becoming a magnet. And old Chuck wasn't through yet. He continued, Biden's got a lot of work to do. The UN speech coming up this week. Look, he's got credibility issues on the world stage to make sure people still view America as a not just a stable democracy, but a competently led leader of the free world right now. I think the next month is going to probably still be tough for Biden, he said, because he's got to get this bill through, this big bill, through Congress. If he can get that thing passed, I think he can start to take a few breaths here a little bit. But he's got a lot on the line here this month, that's for sure. And Chuck, I mean, he didn't even mention the southern border stuff. Wow. Can't believe he didn't even mention the southern border stuff. Did you read our story yesterday and hear that CBS video? The three major broadcast networks, CBS, NBC, and ABC, their news divisions had pretty much, they weren't even talking about any of the the problems down at the southern border again. And they were not giving Biden any heat whatsoever for any of this madness on every front. I mean, folks, we could sit here all day and just talk about Afghanistan still after we withdrew. Did you know there are a thousand Americans still locked up over there? When I say locked up, not literally. Maybe some of them are that we don't know about. But I'm, t- I'm talking about locked behind closed doors, hiding, talking on phones, trying to figure out a way and get help to get out of the nation. How do I know it's a thousand? Well, people who are actually working with some of these Americans over there that know the facts, and I'm pretty sure that the State Department, our Defense Department, and the White House all know how many Americans are stuck over there, and I'm pretty certain they know the names of who these people are, but they won't tell us that. Sadly, you know, here's the part that's that's so horrible. We may never know if these people don't get out somehow 
I guarantee you, this administration is not going to pass along any, any information. And folks, today's media, they're not reporters. Seriously, they're not reporters. All they do is read the news that somebody else wrote, and they tell us that it's factual information. It comes from unnamed sources or anonymous sources. How do I know that? Let me just give you a little example. Everybody knows Tucker Carlson, Fox News. Tucker, um, he, he, he spends a lot of time himself in uh, <laughs> some hot water, even with his own company, Fox News. And the reason is, is Tucker is very forthcoming with his opinion. When he gets something that's factual, he's like a bulldog. He'll shake his head. He'll fight it. You can't get it away from him. He's going to bring it to whoever needs to hear it. In this case, it's us. Well, over the weekend, Tucker just took this administration on. And I want you to hear him explain the craziness that is going on in this administration and how ridiculous it is for this president and all of those he surrounded himself with. I mean, it's like the little kids around Grandpa. Every one of them are 100% in the tank for Joe Biden. And it doesn't matter what the truth is. It doesn't matter what right or wrong is. They're going to hang on every word of Joe Biden, whoever the heck is making policy decisions. But at the end of the day, the buck stops where? According to Joe Biden, it stops with him. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. As American forces were pulling out of Afghanistan this summer, Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, announced a new and highly innovative intelligence partnership. The Pentagon, Milley explained, would begin sharing classified information with the Taliban. Yes, the Taliban, the bearded religious extremists in man pajamas that for 20 years we've been told pose a major threat to us in the United States. But no longer, they're our partners now. The Biden administration, Milley explained, was even open to coordinating with the Taliban on counterterrorism strikes against our new enemy, a shadowy group that may or may not actually exist called ISIS-K. We don't know what the future of the Taliban is, uh, but I can tell you uh, from personal experience uh, that this is a ruthless group from the past, and whether or not they change remains to be seen. Uh, and as far as our dealings with them at that airfield or in the past year or so, in war, you do what you must in order to reduce risk to mission and force, not what you necessarily want to do. Any possibility of coordination against ISIS-K with them? It's possible. Because when you're fighting ISIS-K, no holds are barred. So the first of Milley's coordinated attacks against ISIS-K arrived three weeks ago. It was August 29th. That was just days after 13 American servicemen were killed in a bombing at the Kabul airport, a date you remember well. At the time, even Democrats were pointing out the obvious. Joe Biden is senile and totally incompetent. So the administration at that moment desperately needed something to prove they are not senile and incompetent. They are instead decisive and strong. And what better way to do that than to kill people? So that day, the U.S. military bombed a white Toyota in a residential complex not far from the Kabul airport. 
The White House touted that strike as a demonstration of our over-the-horizon military capabilities in Afghanistan, particularly against ISIS-K. Now, Mark Milley, who's pretty young to be senile, but often seems like it, strongly agreed this was a good thing. But at this point, we think that the procedures were correctly followed and it was a righteous strike. Did we say good thing? We meant righteous. That was a righteous strike. And everyone in Washington agreed. One unnamed U.S. defense official described the attack to our Jennifer Griffin this way, quote, multiple suicide bombers inside the vehicle struck by U.S. drone today in Kabul. Significant explosives in the vehicle led to secondary explosions. Bombers belonged to ISIS-K and they were en route to Kabul airport, end quote. So it was perfect. All the bad people were dead. All those ISIS-K operatives. And virtually every news organization in the country parroted this account. They were grateful to give poor old Joe Biden credit for something. The Washington Post assigned five reporters to the story, and they dug deep. They concluded, they concluded that Biden's drone attack had hit, quote, an Islamic State target. On television, where there's mostly no reporting at all, they just read the paper and repeat it, not a single person seemed very skeptical of this our ability to demonstrate effectively that we can strike such targets once the intelligence cues them up. We can strike them from outside Afghan borders, which is a critical element of the Biden plan once we withdraw. So this over-the-horizon capability was demonstrated. I thought it was effective. You call this strike remarkable. This is a realization of what President Biden calls the over-the-horizon strategy. The military event today is so much more than just a single drone strike. It is a projection of power. It is a message from the United States government that even though we're leaving, we're not done with counterterrorism operations. Even though we're going to have to do this, as they say, over the horizon from remote locations, and it's going to be far more challenging, we can still do it. So keep in mind, every single one of the people you just saw speaking knew nothing, literally nothing about this drone strike other than what they read on Twitter. They were totally ignorant, and that did not prevent them, as it never does, from trying to sound totally authoritative. That's our news coverage. Soon, however, a few people started to ask the obvious questions. For example, who exactly had the U.S. military killed? When asked, the Defense Department wouldn't say, oh, that might have been a tip. DOD also would show no proof of those secondary explosions, the explosions that proved the vehicle was being driven by ISIS-K suicide bombers. Instead, Mark Milley just assured the country that those secondary explosions were real, they happened, we know, and the rest of us need to take his word for it. And that was exactly the line from the Pentagon's top flak, known liar, John Kirby. Two quick questions, uh, if I may. On the strike against the vehicle, um, um, do you, you, the, the Central Command talked about secondary explosions, I think, in, in that, but do you actually have visual evidence that there were secondary explosions? Are you convinced uh, that there were? Because that seems to be one of the potential contributing factors to civilian casualties. So do you, are you, are you certain there were secondary explosions? Yes. Can you, I just have a follow-up on a different part of this. Can you say how you're sure? No. Ooh, liar. Not the first time, not the 50th time. Are you sure they were secondary explosions? Yes. How do you know for sure? I'm not going to tell you. And he never did. 
Neither John Kirby nor anyone else at the Pentagon ever corrected that story. But the New York Times did, to their rare credit. More than a week ago, the New York Times ran a piece revealing, with video evidence, that the Biden administration's drones did not actually kill anyone from ISIS-K, whoever they are, assuming they exist. The drone killed a civilian aid worker and a car full of kids. There were no bombs in the Toyota. They had bottles of water, which are very different from bombs in that they don't explode, even secondarily. Finally this afternoon, the Biden administration was forced to stop lying. So here's General Kenneth McKenzie, the head of U.S. Central Command. Having thoroughly reviewed the findings of the investigation and the supporting analysis by interagency partners, I am now convinced that as many as 10 civilians, including up to seven children, were tragically killed in that strike. Moreover, we now assess that it is unlikely that the vehicle and those who died were associated with ISIS-K or were a direct threat to U.S. forces. Okay. After consulting with our interagency partners, all of whom get the New York Times delivered at home, we are admitting that we lied to you for weeks about what we actually did. It was not ISIS-K, there were no suicide bombers, there were no secondary explosions, it was kids and water bottles. In his remarks today, most tellingly, General McKenzie declined to announce any consequences for this, either for the killing of children or for the lying about it for weeks. Now, why is that? We think we know. Back on September 1st, Mark Milley explained that the drone strike of August 29th wasn't out of the ordinary. In fact, it followed the very same procedures as every other drone strike over the last 20 years in Afghanistan. We had very good intelligence uh, that ISIS-K was preparing uh, a specific type vehicle uh, at a specific type location. Uh, we monitored that through various means. Um, and um, all of the engagement criteria were being met. We went through the same level of rigor that we've done for years, uh, and we took a strike. Oh, we had very good intelligence. Likely the same kind of intelligence that led us to believe that German-educated Saudis would never fly airplanes into the World Trade Centers or the Pentagon or a field in Pennsylvania. The intelligence that told us the Berlin Wall wasn't about to fall. The intelligence that told us it was fine to give up Bagram Air Base because Kabul was safe. The government would stand that intelligence. So the drone strike of August 29th that killed a car full of children underwent, I'm quoting, the same level of rigor that we have done for years. Well, that's not very reassuring, is it? But you will not find a more revealing statement about our Pentagon leaders. It explains why no one has been punished for this disaster. If you fire Mark Milley for killing a bunch of kids unintentionally and then lying about it, maybe the accountability chain will start. Maybe they want to fire whoever left hundreds of American citizens behind in Afghanistan and lied about that. So you can't start firing people just because they're terrible at their jobs, obviously. So you can't fire anyone. That's the rule. That's the rule. If you're in politics, if you're appointed or if you're hired and your job has you at, oh, you know, the White House or ancillary buildings around the White House or maybe across town a little bit to the Pentagon You've got eternal job security. You can't be fired. They'll just let you make an excuse for some mistake that you made. May have been modest, may have been honest, may not have been honest. People may have died, but you know what? That's okay. Life sucks, and then you die. Folks, do you understand what all this means? Tucker just laid it out chronologically better than anybody I've ever heard so far. 
And these are just the latest travesties in the Biden administration. Before that, you heard the frustration come out of the mouth of Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan when he said, we need a government pause. And what was the purpose for his cry for the pause? Because there's so much stuff like we just heard Tucker explain that uh, is happening. And do you realize if you put it all in order, None of the Biden debacles, even the ones from the very beginning, not a single one has been resolved. So you had this one, and then you add another one, and then you add another one, and then you add two more. And nobody's resolving any of them. And the sad thing is, folks, a bunch of them, most of them, as a matter of fact, could be resolved. They could be fixed by just doing a few simple things like enforcing the laws, like using reason, like stop trumpeting from the biggest pulpit in the world, the White House, to illegals all around the world. Y'all just come on over. We're going to let you in, only to find out when you get here, that's not necessarily the case. And then look down south. Look at what is happening in our border states, specifically what's happening in the state of Texas. When we come back in a moment, you're going to hear from Governor Abbott. You're going to hear what the latest, his latest cry to D.C. is. And you're also going to get a little insight at the latest that's been going on down there. Maybe during the weekend, hopefully, you were doing fun things. You were diverted from the trauma in politics and all that it causes for the rest of us. And you didn't see or hear some of this stuff. Maybe we can see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. And we're hoping, we're praying that the light we see is not the locomotion engine that's coming our way from the other end of the tunnel. We got more from that. Governor Abbott, the southern border, and even some COVID. Big news up next. The show is better when you're a part of it. So be a part of it. Join Dan at 1-866-37-TRUTH. TNN Live. The Truth News Network. Or online all the time at truthnewsnet.org. The new Amazon Echo has everyone asking Alexa for help. Alexa, what time is it? What the hell is wrong with this blasted thing? Amanda! But the latest technology isn't always easy to use for people of a certain age. These kids have bought me a busted machine again. On desert. That's why Amazon partnered with AARP to present the new Amazon Echo Silver, the only smart speaker device designed specifically to be used by the greatest generation. It's super loud and responds to any name even remotely close to Alexa, so they can find out the weather. Allegra. What is the weather outside? It is 74 degrees and sunny. Huh? It is 74 degrees and sunny. Where? Outside. What about it? The temperature outside is 74 degrees and sunny. I don't know about that. The latest in sports. Clarissa, how many did old Satchel strike out last night? Satchel Page died in 1982. How many he get? Satchel Page is dead. He what now? Died. Who did? Satchel Page. Oh. I don't know about that. Even local news and pop culture. Anita, what them boys up to across the street? They are just playing. They what now? They are just playing. You say they just playing now? 
Yes, they are just plain. I don't know about that. Compare it to smart devices like your thermostat. Alessandra, turn the heat up. The room is already 100 degrees. Are you trying to kill me, Alize? The new Amazon Echo Silver plays all the music they loved when they were young. Angela, play black jazz. Playing, uh, jazz. It also has a quick scan feature to help them find things. Emilia, where did I put the phone? The phone is in your right hand. And it has an uh-huh feature for long rambling stories. So then I gave him five dollars, and he said I only gave him one dollar. Uh-huh. I said, I know I gave you a five. Uh-huh. Because I only had a five and a one only. Uh-huh. And this is the one dollar right here. Uh-huh. So, I mean, you tell me who's crazy. Amazon Echo Silver. Get yours today. I said get yours today. To order Amazon Echo Silver, send a check or money order to Amazon.com right now. I gotta be honest with you. That's the funniest commercial I've heard in some time. When you put a good comedian together with a something everybody can identify with, like Amazon, you know, Allegra, it just turns out funny. Anyway, back to business as usual. Let me let me give you a little hint about the story we're going to publish tomorrow morning at truthnewsnet.org. It's some really, really serious, some egregious COVID-19 news and information about COVID-19 fallout. Well, what fallout is that, Dan? Well, all the fallout that comes from COVID-19 is bad stuff. Tomorrow's story is going to appeal the veil back over some of the truth that has been out there all along, but has been hidden from us purposely, almost totally purposely by folks that don't want us to know the facts. And the tough thing for us here is to answer the question, why, oh, why would they hide things from us, especially about something so serious as COVID-19 and the fact that millions of people are sick And hundreds of thousands of people in the U.S. have died because of the problems that go along with COVID-19. Now, let me just give you a little hint and tell you this. A large number of these deaths that are tagged to be because of COVID-19 and problems that people have that they get from COVID-19, these deaths didn't happen because of COVID-19. COVID-19 was a part of it in some ways, but it wasn't the cause necessarily of some of these deaths. And we've got some demographic numbers that will um, stray away from some numbers that you've been told as well. So make sure first thing in the morning when you get up, truthnewsnet.org. Go to the the uh, homepage story, and I think you'll find that you're going to have a little more information than you have today, and you're going to be able to answer is why haven't I heard about these things? Why haven't I been told? Honestly, we don't know why all the disinformation is out there, but we do know factually a lot of what we're hearing, a lot of what we're seeing is just transferred from other sources who are transferring it from other sources. And the quote-unquote experts that initiate these things are doing so for some reason that we haven't been able to put our finger on, but it has to do with political thuggery. Who's in charge 
and what an end goal for them is for all they are saying and all they're misrepresenting and all they're covering up, not saying anything about it all. Did you watch the Emmys last night? Oh my gosh, I saw a little bit of it this morning. I don't watch any of the award shows I used to a long time ago before they decided, actors and entertainers decided that they all of a sudden were endowed to be political geniuses and the ones that would determine for themselves and all their followers what was good and what was bad in politics. Well, they got together last night. Stars were packed close together into a pretty small enclosed space at the event deck out in Los Angeles. It was live in downtown L.A. with other celebrities congregating at indoor venues across the big pond to the east in London. Presenter Seth Rogen, a lot of people like him. Sometimes he's kind of funny, and sometimes I like him and laugh at some of the things that he says and does, but sometimes he's just downright crude. Well, Seth appeared kind of baffled by the indoor setting for the Emmys. As Emmy organizers had announced earlier, the show would take place in an air-conditioned tent. The venue, as shown on TV, appeared to be fully enclosed. I would have not come to this, he said. Why is there a roof? He was joking, of course, and he got a laugh. Host Cedric the Entertainer tried to preemptively ward off criticism early in the broadcast. You had to get Vax to come here. He was trying to make everybody at home feel better about their being cheek-to-cheek all around the room. I got Pfizer because I'm a boogie, he said, referring to it as the Neiman Marcus of vaccines. Is, is it kind of surprising now the entertainers are placing a star value on which vaccination you get? I mean, you got three here in the U.S. to choose from, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, Johnson & Johnson, that's a baby powder one. That's kind of way down on the pecking change of, you know, being the cool thing to do. Moderna, it doesn't even sound realistic or polished or pretty enough. I got the Pfizer. I got the, I got the Cadillac in Cedric's case. Oh, no, my gosh, Dan, that's racist. No, no, it's not. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with Cadillacs. A lot of people have Cadillacs, and you don't have to be black or white to own a Cadillac. Nevertheless, Cedric, uh, he was trying to be cool up there. Emmy organizers mandated that everybody that came, they had to test negative for COVID and prove they had been vaccinated. Now, did you, did you hear what I just said in that sentence? Emmy organizers made it mandatory. You had to test negative and you had to prove that you had been vaccinated. So if the vaccines work, folks, I d- you'll get this for free here. If the vaccines were free and worked, and you'd been vaccinated and you proved with some ID card that you had been vaccinated, why was there a need to test negative? The vaccines keep you from getting it, right? That's a story for tomorrow. Let's move on. The sight of these maskless celebrities socializing in close proximity indoors, boy, it drove social media outrage to epic proportions. Some noted that kids across the country are being forced to wear masks today in schools, and despite millions being vaccinated, but the big guys and girls in Hollywood 
They got to go maskless when they got in toe-to-toe and cheek-to-cheek, no social distancing, but they're okay because they'd been vaccinated and they proved it. Up in Seattle, the county government in Seattle and other areas are going to require patrons to show proof of vaccine, to even go into restaurants, gyms, and other related indoor businesses in a move that echoes the mandates issued recently by New York, New York City, New Orleans, San Francisco, and Los Angeles County. Now that hits a little bit close to home to me, New Orleans. You know New Orleans Saints are there. They had a horrible game yesterday. They scored one touchdown, but looked pathetic. But I know Louisiana is a huge New Orleans Saints collection of people. I mean, loyalty out the wazoo. And it's the mayor of New Orleans that put that mass mandate up and the vaccine. Don't you think for a second that there aren't a lot of people that own those suites down there? Now, when I own the New Orleans Voodoo, it's across the street where we played in the New Orleans arena. Um, we, We had, because we leased it for our games there, we had access to and and uh, we leased suites for our events. They're expensive as heck, folks. And across the street in the Superdome, oh my gosh, you're talking about a quarter of a million dollars a year just for the suite, and then you have to buy tickets for every event. Don't think for a second that every one of those suite holders is a pro-vaxxer. So how is that going to impact them and their ability to use their suite for Saints games? Because you can book it. The only people that rent those suites at the Superdome are principally doing so for Saints games. And there's a huge expense and amount of money in marketing and all that that goes into a budget that would include spending that kind of money for a suite, which means you bring in clients, you bring people in from out of town. You're not going to be able to do it if you are not vaccinated and those who you bring into your suite for Saints games or not vaccinated. Up in Seattle again, the order up there applies to all of Washington Kings County, including Seattle, goes into effect the 25th of next month. Mandates that indoor restaurants and bars that have a capacity to seat 12 or more are going to have to ask people to show proof of vaccine. That mandate applies to customers age 12 and older. It's not just gyms and restaurants, by the way. It's movie theaters, museums, sports arenas, indoor recreational venues will also have to require customers to show proof they've been vaxxed against COVID. King County Health Officer Jeff Duchin, his authority extends over Seattle and surrounding cities. He said the outdoor venues with 500 or more got to require attendees to show vax proof. Restaurants and bars with a seating capacity of fewer than 12 will have to implement a vaccine mandate starting on December 6th. The order will remain intact for six months, and it defines one as fully vaccinated if they receive their final COVID-19 dose 14 days beforehand. It also stipulates the only Food and Drug Administration authorized vaccines made by Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, and Moderna. Those are the only ones that count. AstraZeneca's got one that's been being used all over Europe and Asia. It hadn't been approved here by the FDA, and you know principally why. It's foreign-made. 
We can't let those foreigners jab us with their stuff. We got to use American-made Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, and Moderna vaccines. Our COVID-19 response, Duchenne said, must continue to adapt to the difficult, changing reality of this pandemic. The Delta virus is much more contagious. It's airborne. It causes severe illness and is seriously stressing our hospitals and healthcare providers. King County's vaccine verification program, he says, will stop infections, hospitalizations, and deaths, safeguard our healthcare system, and provide safer spaces for public and for workers. I got to be honest with you, old Jeff Duchin, he must know something that you and I don't know because that's not the case nationwide. Let me give you one example. I'm going to give you a little peek into what we're going to talk about tomorrow on the show. Duke Medical Center up in North Carolina. Duke Medical Center. Saturday. Of the 365 COVID-19 cases they have in the hospital Saturday, 365, remember that number, 97.8% of those are fully vaxxed. 365. 97.8%. COVID cases checked into the hospital. Some of these are in ICU. I don't know how many of the breakdown. But out of 357 cases, 357 were vaxxed. 365 total. 357 were vaccinated. Eight cases were not vaxxed. You're hearing this hoopla coming everywhere. Oh, Joe Biden, he he started it himself. We don't have a pandemic. We have an unvaccinated pandemic. In other words, blaming anybody that hasn't been vaccinated. The whole pandemic lies at your feet. The responsibility falls on you. Yet, in Duke, now this is not a fly-by-night little rural hospital somewhere, and I'm not demeaning rural hospitals, believe me. Some of the best health care in the world happens there. But Duke Medical Center, Duke University, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, 365 cases, COVID cases in their hospital, of which 357 were vaccinated. And it's not just happening up there, folks. It's, it's happening all over America. People people are just taking this thing. And did you hear the way that Jeff Duchin, how he talked about the requirements, how he talked about what they are doing and why they're doing it? I mean, folks, somebody's got to do some intense planning to come up with all of these different requirements. I can almost see a group of Seattle city council members, because we've got some history with them. Remember all the mess we went through up there with uh, that big chunk of the city being blocked off and people were up there and took control of it, made it their own little city and all kind of stuff was going on. People getting beat up and shot, had one person that got shot and killed. They think differently up there about order, about the rule of law. But I can see them some of them sitting around a table with old Jeff sitting there and maybe it's a fire outside and they're rubbing their hands together and they're saying, ooh, what can we do? What can we do to control them? Let's make them, let's make them, you know, even those little restaurants that seat 12, 
let's make them require everybody that comes in to be vaccinated. Yeah, let's get them. Let's get them. It's crazy, folks. It's nuts. And it's coming. It's all top down. And when I say top down, I'm talking about the orders, the control. None of it has anything to do with science. It has to do with power over other people. Today's story at truthnewsnet.org. We talk about globalism. Globalism. You've heard the term. You've heard about it. You've heard the conspiracy theorists. You've probably, in your lifetime, you have dismissed those who talk about or even mention globalism. You may not even know what globalism is. I mean, I mean, you've heard it all. It's one of those things that you hear about but it's just kind of random and nobody's getting up on a platform and screaming and hollering and telling you, oh, you got to watch out for globalism. It's coming and here's what it's going to do if it gets here and here's what you need to do in preparation and you need to try to stop it. Let's for a moment, let's just talk about the first part of it. The first part of it. Globalism. Well, let's, it, it's hooked together with a couple of other isms. Globalists, globalism, nationalism, sovereignty and self-government, conservatism. Let me just tell you a little bit about them. Just a, just a little bit. Let's start with nationalism. Nationalism is a feeling of unity among a group of people that are born. This whole thing was born during the French Revolution and the age of enlightenment idea of worship of the patrie or one's national origins, where you're from, with a sense of pride in their country. Nationalists today support national sovereignty and self-governance over creating a one-world society, preserving their respective national cultures and the demographics, making that more important than is multi, multi, multiculturalism and a border wall. Contrast that with sovereignty and self-governance. Nationalism can be considered one form of limited government rather than a global government either controlled by elites or at least requiring a massive bureaucracy to make it happen, to make it operate successfully. Nationalists support localized government where individuals have the freedom to make their own policies for each of their individual communities. As nationalists believe that individuals in their communities, whether local or national, it doesn't matter, should be sovereign, citizens should have the right to self-governance. Nationalists think the two go together and can't be separated. Jean-Jacques Rousseau echoed these views when he argued in his writings that freedom and democracy thrive best in small nation-states and that monarchy and dictatorship thrive best in large nation-states. Therefore, nationalists oppose policies such as open borders, mass migration, forming international organizations, at least with the end goal of being a government that controls the whole world. They also support policies like building border walls and maintaining border security. Now, because of nationalism's support of limited, localized, and self-government, conservatives usually support nationalism, or at least lean toward nationalism. 
Most of the non-establishment conservatives see nationalism's support for maintaining independent nation-states as the best way to maintain and promote freedom like those provided in the U.S. Constitution. Also, as conservatives tend to be patriots and love their countries, they oppose policies that undermine national sovereignty and identity, such as open borders, mass migration, membership in international organizations, such as the European Union, the United Nations. Paleoconservatives and national conservatives or conservative ideologies that emphasize and support nationalism the strongest. Euroscepticism is mainly a regional form of nationalism. Okay, there you go. That's the conservative side of all this. What's the other side? Globalism. Here we go. Let me tell you what it is. Globalism is a liberal and authoritarian desire for a one-world view that rejects the role of sovereign nations in protecting values and encouraging productivity, that free market thing, capitalism. Globalism is anti-American in encouraging Americans to adopt a worldview rather than an American group. You know, America first, the Trumpism. The ultimate goal of globalism is the eventual unification of all of us under a one-world government. Global, globalists just, they can't stand nationalism. They can't stand. They just, they just distaste conversations about national sovereignty and self-governance. Instead, they favor open borders, free trade, H-1B visas, interventionism, foreign aid, and changing the U.S. Constitution. They oppose strong border security and the building of border walls. Globalists can come from several political leanings. It's not just Democrats, folks. From the far left to those considered on the right of center, you know, moderate Republicans. Liberals support globalism because it leads to centralized power. Here you go providing liberals with an easier way to gain control. Liberals can more easily persuade a small group of people in a centralized government to rule in their favor than convince everyone of their agenda in a decentralized form of government. So doing away, if this should ever come down the pipe, doing away with national sovereignty and eventually creating a one-world government is the ultimate goal of these globalists. They think that humanity is progressing for the better, and they want to create a utopia where humanity is unified and where there are no wars, no conflicts, or borders, either cultural or national. In other words, no countries. Supranational organizations like the United Nations, the European Union, the World Trade Organization, and the Paris Climate Agreement appear to be the forerunners to a complete one-world government. Liberals support all these. A one-world government is the epitome of big government. So while many of those either disbelieve or deny the existence of a war on sovereignty, imagine it as a very speedy attempt to unite the world in a global government instantly. Bam, one time. They believe that. Those who are actively pushing for a one-world government are pushing a relatively long-suffering strategy that will slowly merge all the countries of the world into each other 
before the official establishment of any world government. They believe this strategy to be the only way it can be successfully achieved. Do you remember the name Zbigniew Brzezinski? Zbigniew Brzezinski. He was an Obama advisor. He was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and Trilateral Commission. He admitted this. He said this, quote, We cannot leap into world government in one quick step. The precondition for genuine globalization is progressive regionalization. Organizations like the European Union, NAFTA, are examples of this progressive regionalization. Additionally, a guy named Richard Gardner, a former State Department official, back in 1974, wrote that a world government could not be established in just one step. Rather, he argued that in short, the house of world order will have to be built from the bottom up rather than from the top down, and that an end run around national sovereignty, eroding it piece by piece, will do the job more so than the old-fashioned assault. His strategy has been fully adopted by globalist folks, international organizations such as the World Bank, International Monetary Fund, World Trade Organization, Paris Climate Agreement, and the numerous disarmament treaties are all examples of this strategy working, eroding sovereignty little bit at a time until all the countries of the world are so integrated by the complicated web of international organizations and treaties that the official establishment of a world government can be done seamlessly and would rather be a more recognition of de facto reality. In other words, they hope that they can push us that way, quietly, behind the scenes, one little rung of the ladder at a time, and before long, hey, it's a reality. We're in a globalist society. That's what they want, how they want it to happen. Globalists have also used mass migration, such as the European migrant crisis incident, to advance this goal. A mass migration puts a bunch of people from certain locations into another country with different values, and it causes much disruption. This can reduce national pride and make the transition to a global world relatively seamless. Any of that sound familiar? For decades, we have heard those once called conspiracy theorists trumpeting details of the U.S. race toward globalism. Most people, they just scoff at even the concept. After all, our forefathers fled something similar to that to establish this nation with a government controlled totally by the people. Of course, that concept flies in the face of those who see a unified government over the entire world as a much more attractive choice. Nothing, nothing could be further from the truth, folks. Take these few tenets of the purest type of globalism, open borders, the elimination of the Constitution and self-government, limitless foreign aid, the elimination of sovereignty, and we have the utopian nation that globalists hope for. So what about this thing? What about what the people want? In a globalist U.S., the people are simply immaterial. We becomes all. There's no entrepreneurship, no be all that you can be, no liberty and justice for all. 
and worse probably than any of this, no Bill of Rights. The citizens of those countries currently living in the system, they have no free speech, no presumption of innocence until proven guilty under their laws, no true private business ownership, and most importantly, nay, no say-so, none, in anything to do with government. Oh, they have elections, but candidates are stand-ins for government bureaucrats. Those who serve in government, those so-called elected officials, they may tell citizens they represent the citizens in government, but those bureaucrats control everything. Folks, globalism is just one more small step away for our society as a whole. Many, if not most, of our freedoms are already being abridged from our inside of our political system. How about a couple of examples of that? Please point to me to the U.S. law that authorizes a president or a governor to mandate anything in health care that directly impacts citizens in which the citizens have no choice. There isn't one, folks. Yet this president, with no constitutional authority, has called for mask mandates, business lockdowns, without a law, with authorization for any of those. Oh, he says all the time, I can't tell Americans to stay at home. I can't make anybody wear a mask or get a vaccination. He says, but responsible governors and mayors do have that authority, and I trust them to just do the right thing. You want me to interpret that? Here's what Joe really means. I might not be able to do it statutorily, but if I say it needs to happen and all those in the line of command don't do them, I have ways to punish them for their resistance against me and what I say needs to happen. Folks, those very things have been happening throughout this entire pandemic. You want another one? Lawless in government is abundant now. In fact, there's no universal rule of law to which government officials adhere. Look at the rioting. Look at the looting. Look at the murders, the killing that is rampant across our nation today. Look at those alleged rioters from January 6th. Many of them are still locked up. They're deprived of their right to access their legal representation. They're deprived of their Miranda rights, and they've been deprived of a speedy trial. These current actions happen continuously in globalist countries around the world already in which a small group of people controls everything. Not a constitution for the people at all. So, Dan, if, if you say this is really going on around the world, who are the American globalists? Now, this may shock you, folks. President Ronald Reagan was a globalist as were Presidents George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush still is, as is Clinton, and also Barack Obama. Reagan gave legal status unilaterally, not Congress, the president, to millions of illegals at one time. Clinton thumbed his nose at Congress while filling his own pockets and letting lifetime globalists set and operate every one of his economic policies. W., Bush 43, he speaks fluent English, had great relationships when he was in office for eight years 
with Mexico's president and others in Central America. Yet he never attempted to do anything about stopping illegal immigration. And he had a Congress that was controlled by fellow Republicans that he could have changed the law, immigration law. But he didn't want to, so he didn't do it. Obama literally bowed to foreign leaders, literally, around the world, actively called for a unified world system. In speeches and meetings with world leaders in his famous apology tour shortly after he got inaugurated, he consistently apologized for Americans' insistence upon the continuation of independence and hesitance to join hands with everyone around the globe. We need unification. That was his term. Where's Joe Biden in all this? Well, He's fulfilling the summary for his globalist predecessors on this front. The Paris Accords, Iranian Agreement, while sucking up to every globalist leader he speaks to, that's being trumpeted around the world as the end of Americanism. I've actually heard people say that globalists can exist. Globalism can exist in a democracy. That's impossible. It can't happen. The two are each mutually exclusive. Don't let that lie lead you down the path away from what we have now. Representative republic is what we live in. So here's your homework. Put the speeches, the debates, the interviews, and news reports of every current leader in the U.S. and state and local government. Judge their political positions, not on what they say to you, but what they do in government. Globalism is so easy to conceal and diminish in its current state in our country, but it can rear its ugly head in a moment. And when it does, its destruction is almost instantaneous. Just ask any of those Europeans who never gave a thought to the possibility of an authoritarian globalist government in their nation. Oh, we always have our government looking out for us, right? relying on Big Brother for more and more handouts that are dangled before us without any real strings attached, that doesn't make you pause for a moment? It's almost as bad as, hey, little girl, want a piece of candy? There's always something expected and demanded in return, even if it's never verbalized. You know, that quid pro quo thing? Wait a minute. Isn't Uncle Joe's nickname Quid Pro Joe? Hmm. I wonder why. So, there's a look into what globalism, nationalism, where in the scheme of things we may find ourselves. And folks, what do you think those people, those multi-billionaires in the hundreds that every January they fly their private jets to Davos, Switzerland, and they all get up and pontificate about, we need to do this, and we need to do this. The this they're talking about is all of us get together and wrap our arms around the world and stop being just considerate and thoughtful for your own countries and start thinking about all of humanity. Here's the kicker in every bit of this, folks. None of those hundreds there 
even would give one second's thought to the fact that if globalism ever did control the world, that they wouldn't be at the top of the heap and they wouldn't be the ones calling the shots. After all, if you're filthy rich, if you're connected, if you're in entertainment, or if you're in politics and you're a leader, you're in charge. And every one of them, I don't care what your field of business came from, what your background is, if you're at the top of the heap, you automatically are consumed by power most are consumed by a lust for power when they get there. But when you get to the top, it's a rare thing for somebody to not to be looking down and thinking about all those plebes down below you that aren't even worthy to breathe the same air as you breathe. So you're going to take care of them, and you're going to make sure they do everything the exact way you tell them to, and if they don't, they're going to get in deep doo-doo with you. Ladies, we ask your forgiveness. Please forgive our immaturity, our outbursts of tacky compliments. Forgive our browser history. Forgive our hormones taking control of us. Forgive us for thinking an open shirt is the ultimate weapon of appeal. Forgive us for opening our beers like primates. Forgive for taking a no as a yes, for insisting on playing a guitar that doesn't exist. And please forgive us for never washing our hands, ever. Schneider, the beer with the exact maturity of the man who's in the process. Car's all yours. Thanks. Cars.com's expert reviews made it easy, but... Shouldn't there be more back and forth? You missed the drama, right? Yeah. Maybe this will do the trick. Oh, it's a puppy. Not a puppy. A wolf. What now? He's a wolf. And that is its incredibly protective mother. Put the wolf down. You guys good? Yeah, we're good. Yep. Okay. Get the right car without all the drama. Cars.com. All drive. No drama. Yo, some people think it don't make sense that I'm a horse whisperer. Fancy prance, yo! But you know what else don't make sense? Bye. I mean, it's good for you, but still somehow tastes amazing. Sideways fancy prance, you heard? Yeah. Clippity-clop, clippity-clop. Yo, I just whispered all of y'all. Too easy. Bye. Five calories, antioxidants, and tastes amazing? None of this makes sense. Need more cowbell? Better yet, how about the ring of truth? TNN, the Truth News Network, and Dan Newman. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not on this globalist train. I'm one of those people that watches the landscape of everything, and I look at it all one at a time individually. And I examine, and I, I'm, I'm very, my wife will tell you this, I'm very literal. I can't comfortably put a whole lot of things on my plate and do a good job at analyzing the whole plate full of stuff at one time. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm ADD. I look in things in boxes. And I want to look at what's in this box, so I open the box up and I look at everything inside it. And uh, 
Then I closed the lid on the box and I put it to the side and I grabbed the next box, opened the lid of what's in it, and I look inside and analyze everything that's inside the box. That's the way I think. So I'm, I'm not out there. I'm not saying because we wrote a story and defined globalism and we talked about it's good and bad. I'm not out there saying, OMG, the end of the world is coming. The globalists are taking over. I'm not saying that at all. Here's what I'm saying and here's what we do at Truth News Network. We present things to our audience, to you, to our readers for you to consider. And then we challenge you. Go get the facts. Go do what we do, but take it to the next level. Dig. Find the facts, good or bad, that support the things that we bring out for you to consider. Just because we say something is so, anybody says something is so, it doesn't necessarily mean it's so. It doesn't mean it's factual. And just because you think something's wrong doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. It's up to us. And this is without question, folks, the most important choices that you're going to make in your life for yourself and your family members, especially your kids. Arm yourself with facts, things that you can absolutely positively determine. And then make your choices and your decisions based on that. Now, let me tell tell you, sometimes you just don't know everything. I mean, this COVID stuff, you'll see tomorrow when we talk about it, there are so many misrepresented things out there that have been called and have been hammered into our thoughts and our minds for 18 months now. Oh, you got to listen to this. This is factual. This is absolute truth. Anybody that disagrees with that is just a conspirator. I'm sick of being called a conspiracy theorist. Here's what anybody is free to call me and honestly tell me this. I am an examiner. I'm a fact examiner. I'm a digger digging for information to verify or disprove things that I've been told by so-called experts over and over again as being factual. When in many cases I find out later they are not. So right here in my own state some of this crazy insanity has taken over and listen to what it's done. LSU famous university, famous athletics, great educational institution. It is the State University of Louisiana. LSU, Friday, they started unenrolling students at the university who are not in compliance with the university's COVID-19 vaccination policy. University spokesperson Early Ballard posted on Twitter, LSU is contacting 78 students to inform them they are being unenrolled for not meeting the vaccination requirement. In August, LSU announced that students got to submit proof of their first dose of vaccine by the 10th of September, full vaccination by October 15th. At a Wednesday press conference, LSU President William Tate said there were 400 noncompliant students. The conference came after a White House meeting where Tate briefed President Biden and his pandemic response team on the university's COVID strategies. Ballard wrote this on Thursday. The updated number since the White House meeting is 78 students remain in noncompliance. The goal from the start has been to get everybody in compliance, but while the number has shrunk, those 78 are being contacted and they're being unenrolled from the university. 
those students were offered to have half of their payments refunded. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to start on that? If you want to weigh in, give us a call. LSU doing that, and then I guess the uh, the coup de gras is, oh, by the way, we're kicking you out. You just started. I mean, you're just a couple of weeks into this semester, and we're going to give you back half your money. Why not, if you're going to kick them out, give them all their money back? Well, you know, it's expensive to run a university, and, you know, we had to spend money because they're non-compliant. Folks, this, this stuff is crazy. And it's happening every Now, let me throw you a little bone about them. I've done two or three of those this morning. One of the people you've heard on this show, a medical professional on this show, dropped me an email over the weekend. Okay. You want to know what's in the email? It's a one-sentence email. It says, there is credible information. Credible information that the Delta variant is actually COVID-19 vaccinations. I'll say it again. The Delta variant is actually COVID-19 vaccinations. It didn't say in the text that I got, the email that I got, it didn't say which one of the three or all three incredible information. I mean, this is a medical professional. I wouldn't have gotten this. It wouldn't have been sent to me if it wasn't credible information. Does it mean it's factual? Folks, I got to be honest with you. There's only one thing that's factual in COVID-19 that absolutely cannot be refuted. When you get it and are symptomatic, it's going to be a problem. And if you have a, a co- issue, uh, it's really going to be a problem. Those are the only things we know. Are you going to die? We don't know that. Are you going to make it through unscathed? We don't know that either. Will the vaccinations work? We don't know that either, folks. We just simply don't know that. But yet, the horrors in this, yeah, the horror should be just. This is a problem that we've got to get fixed to keep people from getting sick and all the the waves, the ripples that happen from people getting sick, the fear, the panic, the government overreach, destroying our economy, our social infrastructure, opening the borders up to these hundreds of thousands of people just flooding in from other countries. It's just like one layer after layer after layer after layer. And we're not even close to getting our arms around it. So this thing down at the southern border, it's absolutely gotten out of hand. It was out of hand when Joe Biden entered the White House on January the 20th, and it's not even remotely gotten one tick better. It just keeps getting worse. The Department of Homeland Security released a six-point plan on Saturday to address the current humanitarian crisis at the southern border over in Del Rio. That just makes me feel warm and fuzzy. Alejandro Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security, he came up with a six-point plan to fix it all. They say, these DHS officials say, they are immediately implementing a new 
comprehensive strategy to address the increase in migrant encounters in the Del Rio sector of South Texas and the fact that they would would even put out a six-point plan <laughs> and then the fact that they would want to present it and make it a big deal, it's laughable. Here's what they wrote in the release of their plan. First, within the next 24 to 48 hours, Customs and Border Protection will have surged 400 agents and officers. Woohoo! to the Del Rio sector to improve control of the area. Folks, 400, it won't touch the problem. It would take 4,000 to touch the problem and make a difference. But they said if additional staff is needed, more are going to be sent. So here's the problem. Okay, Del Rio is west. It's actually kind of northwest of where the epicenter of all this illegal immigration flood of immigrants has happened. That's over directly below Houston. You go all the way straight south of Houston, you hit um, you hit the Gulf about 50 miles below, and then you just go southwest from there down the edge of the uh, Gulf of Mexico all the way down, and you get to McAllen. That's where all the big problem is. So to, to send even 400 to the Del Rio section, which is like hundreds of miles away, what that means is they have to take those 400 away from different posts along the southern border where these officials were policing to stop other illegal immigrants. So nobody's going to be there to do what they were doing. That really makes sense to me. What about you? The second part of their plan, they said, is coordinating with ICE and the Coast Guard to move individuals from Del Rio to other processing locations, including approximately 2,000 of those yesterday, in order to ensure that irregular migrants are swiftly taken into custody, processed, and removed from the U.S. consistent with our laws and policy. Now raise your hand in the room if you believe they're going to start removing them. 2,000 yesterday, they said. I don't see any hands. Third step in their plan, DHS is going to secure additional transportation to accelerate the pace and increase the capacity of removal of flights to Haiti and other destinations in the hemisphere within the next 72 hours. Fourth, the administration is working with source and transit countries in the region trying to, what they, they're not saying, but they're doing it if they're really doing their job, they're begging these countries to accept individuals who previously lived in those countries. Novel idea. Keep your own citizens in your own country. We're not taking care of them. Fifth, DHS is undertaking urgent humanitarian actions with other relevant federal, state, and local partners to reduce crowding, improve conditions for migrants when they get here. Oh, that's what we need to do. Make them warm and fuzzy feeling and take care of everything. DHS has already taken a number of steps, they say, to ensure the safety and security of those that are awaiting processing, including having Border Patrol emergency medical technicians on hand and providing water, towels, and portable toilets. 15,000 people. Have you seen any of the pictures, that bridge that crosses 
Mexico from the border city, Del Rio. Have you seen them coming back and forth across the top of that dam? They walk back and forth. It's like, ah, let's go back to Mexico and have lunch. And then they walk back over. And then they're out butt naked in the Rio Grande River bathing. I don't even want to talk about pooping and peeing. (laughs) I mean, this is ridiculous, folk. And the final point in this big new plan, the White House has directed the appropriate U.S. agencies to work with the Haitian and other regional governments to provide assistance and support to the returnees. Why would those governments do that? They're glad these people left because they're doing, in many cases, the same kind of stuff they're doing over here, living off the government. And this um, release from the DHS, it concluded in saying this, beyond the six steps outlined above, The Biden administration has reiterated that our borders are not open and people should not make the dangerous journey. Individuals and families are subject to border restrictions, including expulsions. That's kind of like a disclaimer. Oh, we got to add this because we're the federal government. We got to tell people this isn't okay. Irregular migration, they say, poses a significant threat to the health and welfare of border communities and to the lives of migrants themselves and should not be attempted, they stated. Irregular migration. There's a fix, an easy fix for every bit of this, folks. Every bit of it. And they don't have to do anything in government. They don't have to change anything. They don't have to go to Congress and lobby for this or lobby for that and try to come up with, you know, the right thing, like laws, to make all of this straighten up. There's only one thing that will work to do it permanently, and it's already in place. What do you? What would that be, Dan? Do I need to even say it? What would it be? Enforce the rule of law. Just follow the law, Joe. Let those people down at the southern border, let everybody down there, Do what they're supposed to do. Do what you hired those people to do. It'll stop if you just enforce the law. So how are many of the leaders in the Democrat Party in Congress, how are they feeling about this current thing? Well, Senator Ben Cardin, who's a Democrat from Maryland, he said over the weekend the situation on the border with these large numbers of Haitian migrants now He said it's the result of circumstances in Haiti. It's not as a result of our southern border, but we still need better handling of people who show up at the border. Nobody's crying. Nobody in the Democrat Party is screaming and hollering other than a few congressmen from Texas, some Hispanic members of Congress from Texas, Democrats from Texas, who are screaming at Kamala Harris and Joe Biden to fix this thing, to stop it. Texas Governor Abbott, over the weekend, he deployed a contingent of Texas Department of Public Safety Highway Patrol troopers to stop this free flow of these Haitian, mostly migrants from Haiti, from crossing the Rio Grande River. It's a law, folks. Why not enforce it? 
The force of nearly a 1,000 troopers and National Guard soldiers entered the makeshift migrant camp housing 15,000 migrants under the Del Rio International Bridge. I just can't believe it would take this, that this would be necessary. The government, now, the federal government has the sole authority and the sole responsibility to enforce the borders of our country. It's just kind of a sad thing that those country borders happen to be the borders of these states. And it's really important when they're down south, the southwest where all of this is happening, that it is state. But even when these governors and these other law enforcement folks, even when they want, they reach out, they cry to Washington, help us, send us help, stop this mess, enforce the rule of law, they hear nothing out of this administration. Do you remember when Donald Trump was president? He faced similar prob- problems down there. Of course, his did not come because he st- uh, stood before a microphone or a television camera and to whoever was watching and listening said, hey, if you live in these other countries, hey, we want you up here. Now wait until I get into the White House and then we've got a plan that are going to help you and it's going to be really cool for everybody. Trump never did that. That's the big difference between him and Joe Biden. Joe Biden, he makes messes in everything he's ever done in 40 years in the U.S. Senate and as vice president in D.C. He messes up everything. He doesn't know a thing about planning, preparation, and structure. He doesn't care. He throws around political ideas, political favors, promises, statements that The words mean a lot, not to him apparently, but to a lot of others. And because you're the president of the United States, what you say, regardless if it's right, if it's wrong, if it's doable, but it fits your narrative, if it fits your personal situation, you're going to jump all over it. And that's exactly what's happening now. And the people of Texas primarily, it's it's similar in New Mexico and Arizona and California, but not nearly as bad as in Texas. The people are paying the price for this political thuggery coming out of this White House. Folks, this entire thing down there. And there's another story. COVID-19 is rampant among these illegals that are coming in. This is not immigration, folks. This is open border crap. There's a big difference. Immigration means doing it orderly and according to the law. This is not what Joe Biden is promoting down there. And it's all on him. It's for political power and it's to prove points. Maybe it's a globalist thing. I don't know. Maybe that's all or part of it. I don't know. But if it quacks, if it waddles, it's usually a duck. And if it's not a duck, Something's going on. Northern Tool and Equipment. My girlfriend has given me a pet name. I'm afraid to ask. Snuggle Muffin. No, it isn't. And she uses it in public. Okay, so give your girlfriend a pet name she'll hate, like uh, Thunder Chunky. I couldn't do that. I see. Too harsh for Snuggle Muffin. Okay. Drown her out with a 200-mile-per-hour cordless sleep blower. Got it. Here she comes. Hey, Snuggle Muffin. <laughs> what are you doing, Snuggle Snuggle. Snuggle. I am so out of here. Wait, 
Come back, Thunder Chunky. There's no problem a little horsepower can't solve. Northern Tool and Equipment. Our next Starbucks customer is Ron. Hello. Strictly espresso, in and out, except during the Christmas season. Uh, I have a list. When he turns into uh, Santa. A venti, iced white mocha, triple shot. He's getting stickers for the new Starbucks Philippines uh, planner. Grande toffee nut latte. It's made by Moleskine? Is, uh, wow, right? Venti, green tea, cream, frappuccino. Hey, uh, you got all the stickers. No, no, it's for my wife. I, I understand. The 2016 Starbucks Philippines Planner by Moleskine. Promo runs November 2 to January 7, 2016. For DTI FTEB SBD permit number 10616, series of 2015. Hey, Thirst, can I try out a few Coke summer sound effects on you? Yes. Cool. You okay with this? Yes. And this? And what about this? Yes. Ha! Gotcha there, Thirst. That wasn't sound effects. That was a Coke. I'm no longer thirsty. You're so out of here. Coca-Cola. Open happiness. Other news going on. Yeah, there's stuff happening in the world besides um, our Afghanistan debacle, our economy, our infrastructure bill, $3.5 trillion in that little bill, $1.2 trillion, other stuff happening there. But speaking of that legislation that's pending, Senator Kirsten Sinema, who's a Democrat from Arizona, she is one of those Democrats that have been leaning towards not supporting Pelosi's $3.5 trillion bill. She has reportedly made a demand of House Speaker Pelosi to honor her promise of commencing a vote for the Senate passed $1.2 trillion, the little one, if you can call $1.2 trillion little, on or before September 27th. If the House fails to pass that bill by the deadline, Cinema says she will reportedly not support President Biden's $3.5 trillion Trojan horse. That's her term. She's calling it a Trojan horse. She told Biden, as Politico Playbook reported, if the House delays its scheduled September 27 vote on this bipartisan infrastructure plan, the $1.2 trillion with bipartisan support in the Senate passed already. Or she continued if the vote fails she won't be backing up that reconciliation bill, the big one. Neither the White House or Cinema confirmed the account saying the negotiations are private. So she's not the only one out there. Along with her, Representative Kurt Schrader has also told Pelosi he will mirror Cinema's demands in the House. If you delay the vote or it goes down, I think you can kiss reconciliation goodbye. Reconciliation would be dead. Cinema and Schrader's comments are significant because Pelosi has just a little bitty majority of three members to pass legislation in the House. Schrader's opposition to the entire infrastructure package could aid in tanking Biden's agenda if Pelosi doesn't honor her promise and hold that vote on the bipartisan bill. So there's even some more pressure on Pelosi. Punchbowl News. They reported the reconciliation package has not completed its House committee obligations. What does that mean? Well, 
it means it's not ready to join with the bipartisan infrastructure bill for a House vote by the 27th. Way back in August, do you remember then? That long time ago, <laughs> three weeks ago, Pelosi has promised moderate Democrats a House vote for the bipartisan bill, the little one, on September 27th, possibly hoping the reconciliation package would be paired with the bipartisan one so they could do it all at one time. Back then, she said, this is a huge moment for both of us, both efforts. As Democrats have been saying for months, that one can't pass without the other. Now Pelosi must now choose whether to move forward on the infrastructure vote without the reconciliation package. Now we gave you the details, the biggest parts of the little bill, the $1.2 trillion. And uh, what we'll try to do tomorrow is pull it out of mothballs and go back and take a look at it so that you'll know what's, what's coming down the pipe. As I told you going into this thing, that young Florida girl still hasn't yet to be, it's yet to be confirmed by the FBI if they have identified her as being the person of the body they found up in uh, the Northwest in Wyoming. No more news on that yet. We'll keep our eyes on that. Watch truthnewsnet.org. If and when we get the factual information about it, we'll post a little bulletin there for you. Meanwhile, back in Chi-Town, Chi, I love Chicago. I mean, it is a great place to go. I've spent a lot of time in Chicago. Great food, great restaurants, great people, great atmosphere, good shopping, according to my wife. But it's turned into a quagmire of horror and terrorism. Not real terrorism as in, you know, terrorists from around the world doing their thing, but American terrorism. 54 during this weekend were shot. 54 were shot. Nine of them died already. The Chicago Sun-Times said six of the nine shooting fatalities occurred during a four-hour time frame early Saturday morning. A 29-year-old man, a 34-year-old man were killed in a drive-by. I mean at 12.15 a.m. That's Friday night. Right after the tick of midnight, they get gunned down in a drive-by. The shooting occurred in the 1900 block of South St. Louis Avenue, leaving the 34-year-old dead at the scene, the 29-year-old fatally wounded, and he died at the hospital. A few minutes later, police discovered 31-year-old Marwin Sanders Price unresponsive He had multiple gunshot wounds, was pronounced dead at the hospital. A 21-year-old man was shot in the 3100 block of West Arthington Street about 2.40 a.m. He was in an argument with a woman when somebody walked up and opened fire, striking him multiple times. Another, a 33-year-old man standing by his vehicle, was shot and killed in a drive-by about 3.58 a.m. At about the same time, a 27-year-old tow truck driver was shot and killed while trying to give service in the first block of West 57th Street. 60 were shot last weekend in the city. With over 3,100 people shot in the city between January 1 and September 7th. Now put that in the context of your city where you live. 3,100 people shot this year in Chicago. 3,100. Oh, and by the way, at least 56 were shot through Thursday of just last week. 
and then you had 54 over the weekend. This is nuts, folks. This is lawlessness at the, at, at the worst time and the worst places. And it's unnecessary stuff. It's something that we really don't have to have. Leadership is allowing it. Sitting by benignly for political purposes, I don't know. Maybe they're scared. Maybe they don't want to do anything. I, I, I don't understand what it, it just makes no sense to me. I mean, folks, the worst thing that can happen to us is lawlessness takes our lives and the lives of those we love. And all of these elected officials, the mayor of Chicago, the governor of Illinois, part of their oath of office is a commitment to their, not just their voters, but the citizens in their cities and states to protect and defend. In other words, to take care of those who live in their cities. That's number one. And it really doesn't matter what happens if you don't take care of that, if you don't keep citizens safe. Nothing else you do is going to matter. It's going to pale in comparison to the fact that you're not doing what you promised to do. And there's no explanation for it. Absolutely no explanation for it. It's just one of those things. Oh, it happens. We got to deal with it. Around the nation this weekend, college football back in full swing, high school football back in full swing, NFL football going strong. And in the midst of all of that, there's a lot of political uh, commenting being made. And I'm, I'm being facetious when I say commenting. For the third straight week, college football fans around the nation have been hurt numerous games. And folks, especially at these big universities where they're nationally televised on networks, and, you know, you get the the background sound, the crowd noise. You get it on these microphones. Multiple places, even on the broadcast, you can hear breaking out in the crowd in chants of F. Joe Biden. And that just kind of parallels the fact that his, um, his favoritism, his likability, his support continues to spiral downward in the polls with this wave of crises and scandals. And I mean, we're not going to name him again. But fans are unhappy with what he's doing and what he's not doing. It happened big time. It was caught on. I, I happened to flip over and saw this game, just this little bit of the game at the University of Kentucky. And the announcer just let it, I mean, it was almost like they stepped back and held a crowd out over the uh, people so people could hear what was going on. SEC game, it was packed. Another game, Coastal Carolina, another one at Virginia Tech, another at Auburn, Texas A&M, and more of them. Last weekend, the chant was even heard at the Chicago Bears-Los Angeles Rams game. Biden's approval rating, it's now under. 50% has stayed there for weeks. That, as pollsters say, puts him underwater. That's a position from which politicians rarely recover. And that's when I told you. That's why I told you early in the show today. I don't see a case where Joe Biden makes it to the end of the year. Maybe they'll keep him propped up. I don't know. But, uh, 
I, I just don't see how they can. I don't see how he doesn't step aside. Jill, make the phone call to Nancy and Chuck and tell them, hey, guys, Joe's he's just not going to be able to handle it anymore. Well, that's a wrap on Monday. Again, tomorrow, a big show. Make sure you make it here. Go to truthnewsnet.org and pick up today's story. It's something that everybody needs to look at and get to understand. Until tomorrow, folks, have a great one.
Taking a break. Thank you. Thanks for coming out and sweating with us. <laughs> we'll be back in just a few minutes. Don't leave, because the best is yet.